Hello there. Welcome to Work, Rest, Slay, the podcast for the Image Business Club. My name is Melanie Morris and I'm the contributing editor at Image Media. Today, I'm joined by someone I always tune into whenever I hear her on the radio or speaking at an event, and that's Sinead McSweeney, Vice President of Global Public Policy and Philanthropy at Twitter. She's someone with about five lifetimes worth of experience under her belt, having already been hugely successful in a career that spanned law, politics, communications and public service. She's also received numerous awards and accolades, including our own overall Image Businesswoman of the Year Award in 2019. Sinead made the move to Twitter quite early in its existence when she joined as Senior Director Public Policy EMEA in 2012, a role that didn't exist before she stepped into the saddle. Having been with Twitter now for almost a decade, Sinead has worked in a variety of lead roles, all of which she's embraced with her abundant range of experience and skills. And this is where I want to get in to find out more about the real nuts and bolts needed to keep so many plates spinning at one time. And just before we start, it would be so appreciated if you'd hit uh, subscribe on this podcast, rate us, and if you had a moment, leave a review. But now I'd like to welcome Sinead McSweeney. Sinead, thank you so much for being with us today. It's always great to see you, but thank you for uh, sparing the time because since we last spoke, which was at the Businesswoman of the Year Awards, I can't believe it, 2019, but you acquired a new title last year. I did indeed. Late last year, I became the global vice president for public policy. Uh, Prior to that, I had been looking after the region here, Europe, Middle East and Africa. But uh, I now have global responsibility for public policy for Twitter. And in real terms, does that mean double the amount of work or how does that materialise? Uh, It kind of means slightly longer days Mm. because I I now have to talk to people in um, Asia and Australia as well as uh, sometime uh, sometime in the evenings talking to the US. But it's really exciting. I mean, there's nothing better than getting a new opportunity and new challenges within an environment that you're already familiar with. So I think across my 10 years with Twitter, I have been fortunate to have a sense of getting new jobs, but without having to be totally out of my comfort zone in in terms of navigating a new environment. But uh, I I thought it was quite interesting to get a global role in 2001 at a time when you couldn't travel. So it must make the day very, very long. You have to manage it. Mm. And I mean, it's the same the same thing that I say to everybody on my team. Manage your day. Nobody's nobody expects you to um, be continuously working from seven o'clock in the morning till 11 o'clock at night. It it suits me. My my son is in secondary school. Um, I can be available to him at particular times of the day. Mm. And then I choose to do a call at 10 p.m. at night, but I'm not working continuously throughout the day. And that's that's what I encourage with my teams as well, to find that balance um, and to, to structure the working day um, according to their own needs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And is there a philanthropy element of the role as well? There is, yeah. So the public policy team is responsible for Twitter's philanthropy work, what we call Twitter for Good. Um, so um, that takes different guises around the world. We don't necessarily have the deep pockets of uh, some of our peer companies because we're actually much smaller than them. So what we like to do is a lot of in-kind work. Um, so, you know, for this in Ireland, for example, we're partnering with Women's Aid this year. So as well as raising funds for them, we'll also talk about, well, how can they leverage Twitter as a platform um, to um, advance their cause and, and their messaging? And, and we've done that with other charities around the world. And then clearly in the context of Ukraine, uh, we're doing a lot of work with um, the International Red Cross, um, also with journalist organizations, because the truth um, and and the integrity of information is important. Important. So we mm. find ways in which to kind of weave the the need for good in the world with what Twitter and Twitter's employees can give. Well, I suppose your currency actually is the accessibility, the immediacy and the communication. And that's yeah. what people want. And, you know, it was funny because when I was uh, coming here this morning, I was thinking, you know, like it's back down to that, you know, you have one phone call, you're trapped down a well, you have Wi-Fi for 30 seconds 
Twitter is the place you would go to to let as many people know as possible in as short a space of time as possible. You know, that's true. And that is what has happened. We have people who have been in conflict situations who all they have been able to do is get a tweet out Mm. um, and and help has come for them. It's incredible. It really, really is. Before we get on to talking more about Twitter, I'd love to go a little bit back in your career because you strike me, Sinead, as somebody who has never had a DOS day in their lives. <laughs> All of the rest of us who've maybe, you know, stayed under the duvet a little bit. Um, you know, just to go through some of your titles, you've been a special advisor in the Office of the Attorney General. You've been a special advisor in the Department of Justice, um, a director of media and uh, PR with the PSNI up in the north of Ireland, and then the director of communications with the Garda Síochána. Could you tell us a little bit about how you, you you started with a law degree? So how did everything fall into place? Uh, well, I'd firstly assure you I do more than my fair share of duvet days and <laughs> there are moments where I feel incredibly lazy. Um, but uh, I I mean, I in, I've always enjoyed work, um, um, but I've always enjoyed uh, a challenge, something with impact. Um, yes, I studied law in University College Cork. Always important to mention that I am from Cork. Um, <laughs> Funnily enough. <laughs> and... Um, uh, and f- from there, I mean, the reality for me, I did the bar, the reality, the financial reality was I could not go and, uh, you know, starve down in the law library for three or four years. It wasn't an option. So I got a job in the civil service in mm. working in Leinster House, loved politics, always loved politics um, and uh, came to work for Bertie Hearn, basically because I asked uh, for a job while Fianna Fáil was in opposition. Mm. And, you know, that just set me on a journey into different roles in and around politics um, ultimately working with um, Michael McDool as Attorney General and then as Minister for Justice, which piqued an interest in policing, um, which led me to Northern Ireland to um, a head of media and public relations role um, back down then to do the same job for Angarda Shikana and um, ultimately to Twitter, because, again, working um, in Angarda Shikana, I had piqued an interest in the role that Twitter could play for us in getting important information out to the public. Um, And so when Twitter was opening its offices here back in 2012, Mm. they were looking for somebody to do public policy, government relations across Europe. And I was able to kind of sell sell my case. I've, I've never had never worked in tech, had never worked in the digital space, but I was able to leverage the, this and tell the story around the skills that I had yeah. and how would they would fit. Uh, it's fascinating. But the times with the two police organizations, I mean, that must have been literally day by day, quite, quite demanding. It, it was, but it was incredible. Mm. I mean, the time in Northern Ireland particularly was probably what year the highlight. What year has been? Um, it would have been around 2002 to 2004 five, I think. I have lived, yeah. you, know, you know, the way you reach a time in your life where you can't remember dates as clearly as you could before and, and the path. Um, but so, the key issues at the time. Yes, so the key issues at the time were... Um, the Northern Bank robbery oh, yes, uh, within yes, a very yes. short period of time. When I started, Sinn Féin were not on the policing board and had not publicly declared any support for policing and were still quite antagonistic towards policing. And um, so the first meetings that took place between the chief constable of the day, which was Hugh Ward and uh, Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness, those meetings took place during my time. The murder of Robert McCartney took place at that time. The White Rock riots um, with very difficult July um, with you know, significant violence on the streets, including uh, the use of live ammunition, um, a lot of police officers injured. So it, it, in some ways, it, it was it was a really interesting time politically. And we were fortunate that, like, that during that period of time, actually, no. Um, no police officers were killed uh, during that period of time. Mm. Um, things obviously deteriorated again subsequently um, in that respect. But it it really was a, just a wonderful time to be to be working in that environment and trying to change attitudes of um, a community towards policing and just advance the the, the positive just 
it, like it was it was change management in all of its guises there was so change what, management internally there was change management externally gosh I was just going to ask what sort of things did you learn at that stage I mean because there must have been so many learning curves going on um I that's a good it's, a, it's an interesting one um I learned a lot actually on a personal level about management and leadership because all of the roles that I had had prior to that were um, kind of individual contributors, as we call them yeah, now, yeah. Uh, you know, the special advisory roles. You're not really you're not responsible for other people. You're not responsible for a team or a budget or anything. So that was a really steep learning curve for me. I was responsible for a team. Um, and not just any team. It was a team that had a mixture of police officers and um, civilians, uh, people drawn from two communities in Northern Ireland because um, any any mass recruitment at that time was done under um, 50-50 mm. rules. Um, and so, you know, making sure that um, it was an environment where everybody felt respected, everybody felt heard, um, and and that you know we got the work done. Yeah, um, was really really interesting. So in terms of my my first foray into management and leadership, it was a fascinating environment in which to learn. Gosh, and I'd, were were there many other females in in your professional life at that stage? Or was it a very male dominated environment? It, it, within my own team, it, it was um, it was quite female, mm-hmm. obviously at a senior level in the police organization. Um, there were, I think, two other women uh, during my time, both police officers. So Maggie Hunter was one and Judith Gillespie was the other one. And then coming down to the Republic of Ireland to work yeah. with Garda Síochána, what was that like? I mean, obviously, you'd a wealth of experience now on board. Did it make it easier? It did make it well. I knew policing. Mm. I, I think one of the mistakes that people make going in in senior civilian roles within a police organization is not taking the time to know and understand the lived reality of policing, and um, you know that there, there, you know, people have very can have very strong views on on policing, mm. um, but you know there is there is something about the reality that people put on a uniform and walk out a door. And they may not come home. Yes. Um, and and therefore the decisions that people make and, and what they see. I, you know, I often talk about the fact that um, police and, and members of Angarda Shikana see the very, very worst of humanity. Um, things that actually we can't imagine. Like I, I remember one time mm. being at a, a book club um, many years ago and I can't even remember what book we were reading, but somebody kind of saying, oh, you know, this this isn't realistic. This wouldn't happen. And like in my heart, just going, you actually have no idea how depraved and how cruel uh, we can be as human beings um, and not in other parts of the world here in Ireland. And, you know, members of Angarda Shikana, they bear witness to that on behalf of our community and they 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 see people at their worst and they see the consequences of people at their worst yeah and as i'd say a lot goes on when i say behind closed doors it could be domestic ones it could be professional ones it could be any sort of you know farm doors whatever it might be yeah but they see things we would probably have no idea yeah and about. wouldn't want to see yeah um what were the kind of the big stories while you were with Angar the Siakona? or can you remember and it, like it's so funny every day you are you know you kind of go day to day week to week and you forget yes the magnitude of what went before because you're just moving on to the the next big thing um i suppose it's like us with magazines we print a magazine it goes to press and somebody says what's in this month's issue of image and even though you've been working it for months it literally goes out that's, of your brain doesn't that's it that's exactly it because mm. you could you could go i have a sense that last week was frantic <laughs> but i'm just gonna have to take a minute to figure out um <laughs> what it was that kept us all busy mm. now twitter ha- has a bit of that as well i mean in terms of you know, positive highlights, obviously that, you know, the the visit of um, Queen Elizabeth II followed yes. very quickly by the visit of President Obama. They were like, that was a massive logistical exercise and security headache mm. for Angarda Shikana. So that was all very exciting. Um, and then, you know, you, you know, your time also kind of can be punctuated by 
you know real you know real tragedies mm. and I, I'm not going to name and yeah. name any yeah. of them but just you you really you really learn and, and that's, I was in the communications role and that intersection between you know very legitimate um, reporting on serious events and the place where it really steps in to an unconscionable invasion mm. really of people's trauma and upset because you know people who literally become front page news because a traumatic violent event happened to them or to somebody in their immediate family mm. and that somehow gives the world license to know and probe every aspect of their lives and unfortunately move on when the next tragedy happens and and very often again it is it is police officers it is family liaison officers it is detectives who are the ones who stay with um, that family or that individual when the rest of the world has yeah. moved on i think that must actually be one of the hardest parts because suddenly what's become so important to you you they must feel people must feel nobody cares anymore yeah and and that was one of the reasons why i got to a point where i needed to move on mm. because I remember kind of shouting down the phone at a journalist and kind of going, okay, this is not good for me. This is not good for Angara Shikana. It's not good for mm -hmm. anybody that this, this dynamic is frustrating me so much. And I think, I think crime reporting is hard for those who do it, particularly for those who do it well, mm -hmm. and they are few and far between. Um, but it's it it can be I found it it got to a stage where it was just um, a difficult environment in which to operate consistently at the appropriate level. And were you always on, you know, because my our, our impression of crime reporters and, and that kind of world is that you're getting phone calls at three in the morning and. Yeah, well, you kind of you kind of are always on. I mean, you have structures around you. You have you know on call systems. I do remember getting the call about the Northern Bank robbery in the middle of the night, and uh, to my great embarrassment, um, I, re I remember somebody said, "There's been a bank robbery. They've stolen twenty six million pounds." And my first uh, reaction was, "Is there that much money in Northern Ireland?" <laughs> uh, this was two o'clock in the morning, and then like falling back to sleep and waking about three hours later at five or six o'clock going oh my god that actually happened that was not a dream. a dream and just like bolting out of bed and getting to to the office oh good lord um, but it is the kind of thing it's like when you go to sleep listening to a podcast and you can't yeah. re remember who told you a piece of information and exactly. then you realize no i was listening to something my goodness me and um, in in those early days uh you know the, the pre the pre-Twitter days, who would have been, you know, the sort of the, the key movers of your career or people that would have been really, really instrumental in your success and your your ongoing um, movement throughout your career? I think there were a, a few people and I suppose I, I divide them between the people who took a chance on me and the people who um, sponsored me, as in said, have you thought about Sinead? So, I mean, I, to his credit, um, I mean, that period, 1996 to 1997, when Fianna Fáil was in opposition, um, the back room that developed in Fianna Fáil at that stage under Bertie Hearn's leadership was um, primarily female, um, very, very young. Um, and all people who have gone on subsequently to, to really interesting roles. And, but we were given opportunities to be at the center of policy development in opposition and then uh, roles within government. So like there was myself, Mandy Johnston, for example, um, who was um, a highly effective government press secretary and has gone on to other roles. And that was, you know, Bertie Hearn was the one who, who facilitated those early starts in, in careers by taking a chance on a bunch of young, bright, enthusiastic people. You were your own uh, West Wing. Yeah, almost. <laughs> very exciting. Almost. Yeah, maybe very not, exciting. Maybe not quite as glamorous, but um, there thereabouts. And then Mary Harney is another person who um, spoke up for me, I think, at a point in time 
when uh, I had been working for David Byrne, who was the attorney general, he went off to uh, the European Commission and Michael McDougall came in as attorney general. And normally when your boss leaves in politics, you leave with them. Mm. But Mary Harney was the person who, who said to Michael McDougall, well, would you consider keeping Sinead in that political role? Um, and, you know, I am eternally grateful for her because really that was that was a, a key pivot point in in my career and grateful to to Michael McDool for, again, taking a chance on somebody who ostensibly was coming from the Fianna Fáil side of the house. And, you know, it would have been completely within his he rights. Because he was a PD, wasn't he? He was a PD. Democrat. He'd been yeah. within his rights to say, no, I would prefer my own person. Mm. Um, but like that was the moment that put me on the path to Department of Justice, Police Service in Northern Ireland and Garda Shikana and, and into Twitter. So and then I've been I've been really fortunate. I think of people like Hugh Ward, like Faulkner Murphy, who um, just had like t- were totally comfortable in the company uh, of strong women uh, from taking advice and sometimes instruction from, uh, you know, a woman who was much, much younger than them, who w- was not a trained police officer um, and who just, you know, had that sense of, I want to know what Sinead thinks or Sinead should be in this room. Um, and uh, that they were they were definitely kind of key figures also in how I developed my own approach to thinking and, and working and, um, you know, prioritizing, mm. assessing what's important. Brilliant. Well, I mean, great to have those people mm. in your life, but equally, um, you know, it's amazing. I'm sure the confidence that it gave you to to keep pushing forward that, you know, you were all on the same team and it was a team that was going places. So. It's exciting. Yeah. So what led you to apply for the role in Twitter or how did that all come about? Because as you say, you don't have tech background. So obviously the the um, the comms part was interesting for you and the public policy part. But how did that actually become a reality? Well, it was after, after or during the, the visit of, of um, Queen Elizabeth and uh, President Obama, that was where I kind of could see the power of Twitter for that kind of public service information sharing. Um, you know, no no news broadcaster wants to, you know, read out a whole set of street closures and everything else for mm. a massive logistical traffic operation. But yet the public needs to know that information. And then we had used it actually to engage with people over the course of the visit. So everybody stuck on the M50 and they're tweeting and we were able to tweet and say this will be gone in 20 minutes. And that kind of significantly de-escalates your level of anxiety when you're sitting in a traffic jam. So I became really interested in in the power of Twitter, was looking at how other police organizations were using it and then talking to to other government departments about about Twitter and um, they you know they were intrigued they were kind of like if the guards if the guards are using it of all of the people like there there must be something in this mm. and so uh, just simultaneously Twitter had had um, was looking at Dublin for its headquarters and um, I came to know that they were looking for this head of public policy role and so I put in an application and told my story and including my my presentation, I used to call it a tale of two Twitters um, and that hasn't changed much um, and that I, I used to do for other government departments and then just my enthusiasm for the power of the platform and then obviously showing my kind of smarts and qualifications mm. around engagement at EU level because I had worked in government departments and you know helped kind of prepare ministers etc for for council meetings so I was able just to demonstrate a suite of skills around knowledge of the platform enthusiasm for the platform itself but also how government works how you get things done how you build relationships um, you know what's important in in the context of setting up a business um, in in Europe so you had plenty of assets basically in yourself that you could bring to Twitter that they may be the tech yeah. experts and the digital experts, but you had elements that could, yeah, could and, make it better. And I mm. think particularly in the area of public policy, like I've always had a view when I'm hiring somebody to do public policy and that kind of government relations, public affairs piece is that you don't actually need to be a subject matter expert for the area. You need a skill set 
um, that's transferable. Um, and and I think that's that's really important. Mm. What was probably new to your um, bag of skills was an EMEA role. Yes. What was definitely. that like when you when you, you know how do you even start uh, working on that kind of level? Well, I mean, the reality was that um, for the first few years, it actually was just me. It was like, oh, we're hiring you to lead a team for EMEA. And then you're on your own. For, <laughs> you are. <laughs> for two, two and a half years before mm. you get to make your first hires. Um, so it, it was kind of a, a sense of um, learning on learning as I went. We were really highly reactive for the first few years. So basically we focused wherever we had a problem. Mm. Um, and so, you know, in, in general, then you kind of immersed yourself in one market at a time as you had a problem in a different place. Um, and so I remember, I remember my, um, we were blocked in Turkey at one stage and I remember my, my husband quipping, he's like, he said, you seem to know more about Turkish politics than you know about Irish politics now. But that was, that was just the nature of the role. You had to immerse yourself in, in a country. But I do remember it, that that kind of that transition for me, I had always been a minister's advisor or a police chief constable or Garda commissioner's advisor, mm. the person who stood behind the cameras while they did an interview or who sat to the side at a parliamentary mm. committee. And that that shift to actually, oh, oh, I'm running this meeting. It's it's me. <laughs> you know, I'm sitting in Moscow at a meeting or I'm sitting in Istanbul and um, or I remember an, an occasion in, in Dubai and realizing, uh, no, I'm not the advisor. This is actually on me. When the questions come, I'm answering them. And I'm the one who has to completely come up with and own the strategy. And that was interesting, that stepping out from being the person on the shoulder of somebody. Did it take long to do the personality change that was needed or the the mental adjustment? It it took a while and I think there are days when I still don't quite get there which um I think I mean, it's funny, even even some of the, the, the teams that I have around me, people who who help me be effective at the job, they kind of have to remind me that that's what their role is. That, that they're I, the you. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, mm. the, like that that I, I do need advice and I do need input and I do need to be minded occasionally. Uh, whereas I and, and it was funny because I remember when, you know, when when I joined, so I joined Twitter we're part of the the legal organization so our general counsel who was you know a young tech lawyer yeah um a really really successful uh person Alexander McGilvery he um he he came over to do meetings in Brussels and I was obviously the person on the ground so I was um accompanying him and Mm. he turned around to me midway through the half day the first day and he just said will you please stop staffing me (laughs) but I had gone back into the mode Mm. and that I was used to of Mm. you know here's your brief here's what we're saying he's like uh uh, no I'm here to provide input but this is your area you are the you are the expert on on Europe um, so that was that was quite interesting. As Gosh, well. well, I suppose the thing is, once in that mode, always in that mode, exactly. and you can probably empathise very much. Could you just give us a little bit of context as to what Twitter was like when you joined? So that was two thousand and twelve versus now, because I'm sure the organisation must be so much bigger, so much more dynamic. You were a startup at that stage. Yes, maybe? we were startup. So just like in a Dublin context, I was. Um, employee number 16 I mm-hmm. think in 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 Dublin um, we have um, almost 500 people now um, that's again that's not big in when you sit us alongside the Googles and Facebooks of this world where you know they have more people in Dublin than we have in in the world mm. um, and uh, it the global global footprint was a couple maybe five or six hundred and now it's maybe I think it's around five or six thousand right so um there's that that sense of of growth but also as you know the product or platform itself for the service whichever um phrase you want to use you know we were very much wedded to a kind of a uh U.S. First Amendment approach to free speech. Um, we had um, 
rules addressing primarily illegal content. Um, but over over the court, as the company itself grew, as the popularity of the platform grew, I think our own thinking had to evolve and become much, much more sophisticated around um, the kind of content that we should allow on the platform. And, you know, that space where a, a commitment to free speech principles um where it, where you over index on that, you you run the potential of other voices being silenced because they're being harassed or they're being threatened. Um, it's not an it's not an easy balance to to strike. And you know, on most days, even on my own timeline, I will see people criticizing us because we have taken down too much um, content or that we're not taking down enough. Um, so we we will always have to to learn and evolve but uh, the it it's just interesting that in that so much has changed in 10 years just mm. in terms of you know the size of the company how we work um but also just how in fact we kind of deliver deliver the service and and how we police it effectively can i ask you obviously brought a load of skills with you. Um, what skills did you have you acquired maybe in the last 10 years working in sort of a more tech or digital sector? Well, one of the most fascinating learnings has been that sense of navigating, working with, leading really, really diverse teams. So we do lots of training and um you know opportunities to do different courses and etc and you know this this sense of always learning mm. and always growing but i still go back to one piece of training that we did with two-day workshop um a, a called the culture map um and it was about understanding you know 10 10 key business skills and what the dominant um, approach is to each of those 10 business skills across different cultures. And then you could like literally there's a tool where you can map your team. So you have people who are high context and low context. You have people who are very wedded to hierarchy, others who are not people who, um, you know, their their the, the cultural approach is to be um, to speak up. Others won't speak until they're asked or so you can map your team and and see where they are on this graph across these key competencies and you can actually very quickly you can literally go and say ah that's why that meeting didn't go well or that's why we failed to resolve that issue fascinating when i won't say definitively that's why but it's an element because people are talking in different ways and hearing in different ways based on the business norms um, in their country so you know, it was quite funny. Um, I remember somebody who's from Eastern Europe um, explaining how it, when he was communicating with the US, um, they had a sense that he was, you know, terse and not sharing enough. And when he was getting communications, his attitude was, do they think I'm stupid? <laughs> right. But, you know, the, the the bias in one is to explain every single detail. And the bias on the other is just we, this. This is I'm just telling you the, the bare essentials. Mm. Um, and there's, you know, direct and indirect and even timekeeping. You know, people's approach to timekeeping or uh, project management, it, it varies. So that has been really really wonderful because it's been it's been educational I felt I've developed new skill sets um but but also it's it's just really really mm. interesting it's probably like an orchestra you've got your yes. wind section you've got your horn section you've got your strings and you need to make sure everything is in balance yeah um and the other thing is I, I think is just developing a global mindset mm. um, and I think we're fortunate in some ways here in Ireland and I think it's one of the reasons and there are many reasons mm. why global companies set up regional hubs here is because you know the Irish market itself for most of these products is not large mm. so people by definition even though they're sitting in Dublin they're thinking about the world or they're thinking about Europe whereas if you were sitting in like a market with a very high population mm. or high consumer base you're always going to be pulled down into the business priorities for the market that you're sitting in um so you know we are able to create an economy here around the employment and generation of um of, of 
of of industry and technology and and everything else here but we have we have people whose mindset is really attractive mm. to foreign direct investment because it's it's really outward looking and um, Sinead why do you think that in all the years and you know one of the things I've noticed about my own use of Twitter I started on Twitter in 2009 and I tweet, tweet, tweet like mad. Another platform comes along. I flirt with it. I come back to Twitter. I keep coming back to Twitter no matter what platforms come up. There's, is it because of my job or is that normal in a person that Twitter seems to be the jewel in social media's crown? It's always there, isn't it? I think the fact that it's live and it's in the moment and it's open, it's it, it quickly established itself as the, the go-to for breaking news. Mm. for live events and people and that's from the macro to the micro mm. you know i i have seen people you know whether it's following you know the the oscars or um a, a, an emerging natural disaster yeah just okay i want to know what's happening now so mm. i will see who's on the ground nearby mm. on twitter um and the that that sense of people not being able to wait until um, the next headline or yeah. until tomorrow's newspaper comes out or whatever. So I think there's there's that there's that live in the moment, um, just news source. And then the ability because it's open, it's not like closed groups. People can find um, communities. So yes. like I remember talking to a woman who was a teacher in a, one teacher school um, in the west of Ireland, and she talked about Twitter being her class, her staff room. Because Gosh, she, so true. she didn't have any other teachers, but mm. she would get on the Ed Chat IE hashtag and suddenly she was surrounded by teachers and she could ask questions. There are whole communities around illnesses. There are communities around interests and hobbies that none of us will ever see. But people can find each other and have these these open conversations. And I suppose by having the trying to be as open and as inclusive as possible, as you are on Twitter, it means that more and more people can come in, find what they're looking for, and therefore others can find. That's yes, the gist yes. of it, and, is it? And, yeah. and um, there, I, I think it serves many, many different purposes for different people. And that sometimes has been a challenge for Twitter because mm. people say, tell me in one sentence why Twitter is important. But the reason that Twitter is important for you may be entirely different for why it's mm. important or useful to me so that that can be a challenge you know it's it's it it it, it's not always um it hasn't always been possible to say in a short sentence what twitter is um which is why in some ways the the one that um that kind of landed on eventually and which hasn't changed is what is twitter twitter is what's happening Mm. Mm. Um, and because regardless whether it's something that's happening for you whether you're um you know you're sitting in london and you want to know how um gusseron are doing in the hurling in wexford Mm. well you can follow the gusseron o'rahilly's twitter account and they'll give you every score in the game yeah 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 no it's so so true um your own evolution and and sort of career within twitter i mean you've been there for a decade now which is it's a long old time and your role, it seems to be the rolling stone. You're gathering more and more and more and more responsibility. Um, how have you managed to create teams around you? And how have you how, how have you recruited people? Um, well, I have a, a simple rule. Always hire people who are smarter than you. Right? That'd so be hard from your perspective, in fairness. No, it's, uh, I have I, I have uh, thankfully proved very adept at it. So um, hire really, really smart people um, and uh and just I think the the older I've gotten, um, the more attached I am to the kind of leadership and management side of my roles rather than the straight business side of the roles. I mm. guess earlier I'd been in my career, I'd been very goal oriented. Um, whereas now I get as much pleasure out of, you know, hiring somebody and seeing them blossom, be promoted, even you know, leaving to another role in the US, I lose them from my team or going to another company. Mm. But they have grown in their time that they've been part of a team that I've been privileged to lead. So um, I, I it, it's it's about kind of embracing the whole of the person and just trying to build the best culture that you can. Um, and 
if you were getting joy from it. If you were going to, you know, maybe share some tips with anyone who's listening to this, who's thinking about, I'd love to to work in an environment like that. What sort of key skill sets do you look for, both hard and soft skills? Um, it, I mean, it's like most of the functions that I'm supposed to have mm. been most associated with would be the public policy and comms function. So you need you're so you are looking for skill sets that are not necessarily digitally related Um sales probably to to an extent mm. as well. So you do have to demonstrate some energy and enthusiasm for the product. But to my mind, you don't need to be like down in the weeds of digital and AI and everything else. Obviously, okay. and our engineers do. You have all of that. <laughs> already uh, but, yeah um and so um at twitter at least i think a kind of in a t- that sense of um people who are driven by impact um, mission driven purpose and um, those are all important to us we also have we have an ambition to be the most diverse technology company in the world so um obviously we look at things like um people's approach to diversity to inclusion um and then just curious, you know, people who are curious, people mm. who um, also are collaborators and, and team, you know, that they have this sense of that our biggest successes are the ones that we can point to being collaborative or mm. that we worked with others, that it wasn't, you know, a, a people who are just, you know, singularly driven by their own success. Yeah. Um, it's not something that I welcome into a team. Well, it's great to know also that you don't need to be the tech expert because, I mean, the only way you can become the expert in tech and digital media is by going in and working there. So maybe it's good to know you don't need to put all your focus on that, but actually your own skills are the things that people are looking out for. Yeah. And in your 10 years, um, I'm sure there have been so many amazing experiences and days, but could you tell me a story maybe about one of the the more memorable days uh, in the last while? I mean, there are so many and some of them i guess are internal facing and as others are external i was lucky enough to go to paris with our ceo and meet jacinda ardern which was oh my goodness awesome because i she's a complete hero yeah and um, that was and pre-pandemic time it was just pre-pandemic yeah. yeah i was back in early 2019 and uh she yeah she's as she is as amazing in person as as she is on media and then there are just other just they might seem smaller moments, but, you know, we were talking about Twitter for good earlier. And there was a day, this is wonderful teacher, um, Edwina Mulcahy, who is really committed to um, ex- 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 just increasing the scope of horizons for her students. Um, she She's teaching in a school in um, the, the, the north of the city. Mm. And... Um, she brought a bunch of young boys into Twitter at one day and we did a load of talks for them, you know, our, our head of legal and our head of accounting. And um, it, it people still talk about that day, just the engagement that we had with them, their curiosity, their eyes were just wide open. And, you know, I, I've spoken to her since and she just talks about the fact that they learned there were jobs that they didn't know existed. And that there were things that they could aim for and that were possible. And, um, you know, we've talked a few times since about how do we continue to create those opportunities for for children and particularly maybe children who are coming from environments where there isn't a lot of investment in education or people maybe are are conditioned to believe that their their lives are limited or that there are certain jobs that they will do and there are no other jobs open to them mm. um and yeah it was amazing because they they just they enjoyed it so much and they engaged so much with everybody um and you you just love to be able to bottle it and, mm-hmm. and do it again it's great to see um so much responsibility comes with your job do you do you ever stop and think about it or what is your um, modus operandi around that because you're, you're responsible for so many people for so much strategy for so much policy i do stop and think about it um and and particularly given the role that twitter can have in the world for good but also like anything that can be used for good it can also be used for ill um and so i do quite regularly stop and 
just reflect and think are are we part of the problem or are we part of the solution mm. and what is my role in all of that um and i think that's 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 really important um and you know just just being clear being clear on you know also what do i control and um, what do i influence what can i influence and what can i do nothing about and I, you know, I often say to people who are maybe very, you know, very stressed about something, whether it's a career thing or something else is, you know, particularly if it's about a job. Mm. Right. So I kind of go, what do you control? Um, what can you influence? What can you do nothing about? If the things are that you can do absolutely nothing about are causing you that much stress, well, then you need to remove yourself from the situation because you are going to be in this perpetual cycle of stress and worry about something that you can never change. Mm. Um, and so that's that's how I look at, you know, what, what you said, talk about the stresses and yes. responsibility. Well, if it comes to a point where my sense of those responsibilities become such a burden um, in circumstances where I can't do anything to change or influence them, well, then I need to, to go and do something else. Mm, mm, mm. And I suppose you're dealing with so many different ages, so much diversity, so many different types of people that everyone has their own stress points and you can only manage that yourself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and I suppose being clear also where as a leader, what you are responsible for and where your responsibility ends and, mm. and where people have to take responsibility for themselves. Um, you know, there there is a sense, particularly, and this was this was really troubling during the pandemic as well, where, you know, clearly we had we had concerns about people's mental health and well-being. Um, but again, you, you can you can intervene so much, but and you can offer advice, you can point to all the services that Twitter provides or that society provides, but you also just need to be clear, you know, where where your obligations and where your responsibilities begin and end as an employer, as and as a leader, as distinct from as a human being. Yeah. Now, your natural inclination as a human being will always be to go that that extra step. Um, but I I think I think managers and leaders also have a responsibility to look after their own well-being in that mm. context and um, because you can't be there for others it's you know put on your own um oxygen, oxygen mask, mask first. first and actually if I could ask you about that because I know you went through a very difficult time when you lost your dear husband Noel um but you've managed to keep going one foot in front of the other have you any tips for anyone who might be going through a similar type of stage in their life Anything that you learned in about resilience or keeping going? Um, I well, I think I'm still learning, um, and I I still have days where I have to try to keep going. Um, it it's weird, I think, to think back. So Noel died in 2019. Um, I still cannot believe that I stood on a stage at the Image Businesswoman of the Year Awards and a gave a rocking later. speech. It has to be but said, you're amazing. Like, I I don't know who that person was. Looking back. Like I don't, I I don't know how I did it. I don't remember how I did it. Yeah. Um, and so I think, what have I learned? I've learned that everybody's grief is different, and um, manifests itself in different ways. I think I acted a role for for a while, um, and that's partly because I had a ten year old and I needed to to be there for them. Then we had the pandemic, and I get confused between what was grief and what was lockdown. Um, and there's an extent to which time that's a has very good point, actually. Yeah, and and think about how that is further exacerbated for people whose grief commenced during lockdown. Like yeah. we we had a funeral, we had all of that outpouring of help and support that comes in the in the weeks afterwards yeah. you know so many people have been denied that kind of community and family and friend support structure and mm. um, that that you need to sustain you um, particularly in the early days um I, I guess i've learned that everybody's grief is different it doesn't go away mm. um mm. and there was a really interesting article posted on the lust for life website recently and the title was why we should stop trying to fix grief um, so it remains as raw today, I think, as it was. It, it's it's not the same. It's not as persistent. And um, but you learn to live with it. And um, 
you learn a lot about people. I, I Yes, I would agree with you on that one. And I think you're so right in what you say is that you can't manage it and you can't put it in a box or give it a timeline, can you? you no. It's its own beast, isn't it? Yeah, totally. And I think we, you know, we have a habit. And, you know, somebody was saying to me recently that maybe it came out of this, you know, period of mourning and wearing black, that it, it gave us this sense that there's a beginning and end to grief. Mm. And that puts a bit like all the tyranny that exists around uh, becoming a a mother and, and expectations of how it should be I think there are like expectations as to how people should grieve and that people should be over it or they should get better I mean grief like the death of somebody that you loved that you chose to share your life with is a monumental moment it mm. doesn't go away it becomes part of who you are um, and and who you um, it, it's part of how you engage with the world. It's part of how you think about what's a problem and what's not a problem. Um, you have to guard against this new sense of perspective about what's important in the world, mm. um, kind of dissolving into a situation where you think that nothing is important anymore mm. and, and you become quite fatalistic about life. So it's it's a constant battle yeah. in some ways. And you... It it's kind of hard to describe to anybody who hasn't been through it. I've mm. had, you know, I've 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 make you know become friends with people because they are experiencing the same journey that I've been on for mm. the last three years, and it's it's really interesting. It's in those moments, whether it's in kind of. Um, you know warped humor or tears that we just are able to share feelings and experiences yeah. that maybe nobody else would really understand um, were you good at relying on your friends and leaning on your friends or was that a new experience for you as well not always mm. and um if, if there's one piece of advice i would say to people is like never say let me know if i can help or let me know if i can do anything because the person who is grieving does not have an inch of brain space or emotional strength to know what it is they need. So what I remember is the people who just left things on the doorstep mm. uh, or said or, or turned up and said, you're coming out now for a walk. <laughs> um, and you know what? Uh, like the worst thing that somebody will tell you is to go away. Mm. Um, but those those are the ones that I remember because there was no point in in me trying to think like I, I would get into a panic and I don't run through a checklist of all the people who said they would be able to help if I needed help and and try and phone up one of them. Um, so it's um, it's the person who's close to you. And yeah. as you say, yeah. it is the person who lands on the doorstep yeah. that is the one who's probably the biggest help. Yeah. And That's it's, it's never tip. the people that you it's never the people you expect. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say so. Um, tell me, moving on a little bit um, on to now that the pandemic is hopefully on its retreat, um, how are you managing to get everyone back together again and regroup and get people working as teams? Have you any tips on that one? Because I think so many of us are, it's really two steps forward, one step back, isn't it? It is. And we've taken the approach that um, our offices are open, uh, but people can come back when they are ready or when they want or they can decide not to come back at all. So right now, um, I suppose we're shifting the kind of the, the layout of our workspaces from ones which were, you know, each team had its own space to we have collaborative spaces, we have focus spaces, we have social spaces. Sounds great. And people come in and out. They don't go to a set desk, which for the introverts among us can be a bit challenging. Um, we would like to know what the day is going to look like. Um, and uh, at the moment, you know, people are slowly coming back mm. and they are not coming back five days a week. Personally, I have actually only been in the office once since it reopened. My particularly given my role and, you know, my, most of my meetings are with somebody somewhere somewhere else in the world. Mm. So I'm kind of thinking, well, why would I go into the office to sit in a room on on a laptop? Um, and so working from home gives me that flexibility. And in some senses, to the extent that there is an upside to the pandemic, you know, even the fact that I am able to do a global role from Dublin 
is in some ways because of what we learned over the last uh, two years around how it's possible um, to to work virtually um, in even in the, the most either the most senior or most junior of roles. So I think it will take time. It will take time for us to find a level. Definitely will take time for us to capture the the spirit that we had on the site um, over the years. But we we did try to retain a lot of that even during lockdown with. Um, all sorts of innovative virtual gatherings. I think everyone tried really hard, yeah, didn't yeah. they? We were all blending coffee or making cocktails or playing yeah. games or whatever we could. Um, are you looking forward to getting back to traveling? I'd say at this stage, there's a bit of curiosity, is there? A small bit. Um, I Again, just on a personal level, it's it's challenging. Um, as uh, I, I still remember, yeah, one of the learnings, just going back to the yeah. conversation about Noel, was um, the day I realized I was a widow. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a day, some some about a few weeks later, that I realized I was a single parent. Mm. I just it, 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 I hadn't actually said those words to myself and I, I just went, oh, I am a single parent now. Um, and so travel obviously has has a bearing um, in on that one. And but how Seamus much is tra- getting older. He is getting yeah. older, but oh, you need to be around as much when they're <laughs> older as you do when they're smaller. <laughs> Probably with more sets of eyes exactly. on your head. Yeah. Um, but I'm sure it, it, it will probably be great to fire up the sense of what you know why we're in this again to go back to the states or to go over to the east or something and oh, oh yeah exactly and, and i mean on. my i suppose my peers are all in the us and just to to meet people in person it always makes a difference to be able to sit around and knock out ideas or develop strategies you know you can have all the virtual whiteboards and jam boards and slacks and everything else that you like but nothing beats just sitting in a room and you know being able to look somebody in the eye and watch watch every other gesture and and figure a way through you touched on something that i would love to ask um some advice from you on and you were saying you know about having a sort of a more introverted type of personality how do you if if you were speaking to other introverts about making an impact at a meeting without getting too far outside of your comfort zone. Have you any tips? I think be a, a tip I have, and it, it's for all communications really, mm. is I, I in my head I go, what are the three things I want people to remember when I leave the room or when I turn off the screen? Or, you know, it could be for an interview or it could be um, a job interview or indeed a media interview. Um, and because I used to say this to police officers all the time when they were making appeals, what do you want from your audience? Um, so similarly, if you're sitting in a meeting and you introverts tend to sit back and watch how a um, a conversation evolves, they're kind of less likely to, um, you know, the way, what, what is it? Am I listening or waiting to speak? I think introverts do listen mm. um, and, you know, formulate your thoughts. You don't need to rush in with them, but be clear on what is the, what is the point you want to make? What is the impression you want to leave? I mean, where you know what the subject matter is going to be, preparation is always key. Mm. Um, and um, and just not not getting not getting over anxious about it. I mean, if it's an environment that you're working in, people will come to know that you're somebody who sits and observes for the first fifteen minutes, and then they will intervene. If if you're a leader and you're you are particularly for an introverted leader, you watch for the other introverts and you make sure that they are getting an opportunity to to make their contribution. But equally, I think the three thing, the three tips or the th- yeah. the three messages is a great one because it kind of takes all the complication out, yeah. regardless of your personality style. Because I think we can over overcomplicate meetings yes. and what we need to do and how we need to dress and all of that kind of thing. That there is a way, actually, if if you just boil it down to what you need to do. Well, three is a magic number in all communications, mm-hmm. whether it's down to the structure of a sentence, structure of a speech, or just, you know, what you want to impart. Um, so it's it's always three is what I always go to kind of like, what are the three points I want to make? What are the three elements of this plan? What, what are the three continents I'm going to take over before <laughs> breakfast? <laughs> okay, I'm going to think of three quick fire questions and then there might be a few extra ones for you, if I may. Um, are you a list writer or how do you manage your day, Sinead? I am a 
perpetual list writer and I don't all, and I never get to the bottom of them um, but there you will find lists all over my house do you write lists for everything yes oh and do you put them with to place of visibility or once you write it down does that organize you no I keep I keep a notebook um, and like I literally you know cross the things off I sometimes I have a habit of putting off big projects so I try to break them down so I'll make a list with you know five sub elements of the project and then admire myself for crossing <laughs> off one or two and hope that I'll actually do the third I love the person who, who came up with the tip of the top thing on your list should be something you've already done so you've got something to cross off before you begin yeah I might do that sometimes <laughs> Um, have you got a work uniform or is there anything if you're going into the office on one of those rare occasions that you know you can just grab and it'll work? Not really. I, I um, Jeans on a jeans on a jumper, jeans on a shirt. That's yeah. one of the advantages of working in this, the space that I work in. It's also one of the advantages of, of getting older. I think I always definitely when I was younger and when I was the only woman, when I was a young woman, I always had the sense of a work uniform, you know, preferably a suit something that looked made me look like I knew what I was doing so that people weren't prejudging you know turning 50 and being around a while you kind of think well you know what if they don't accept that I know what I'm doing at this stage putting on a dress isn't gonna help well I always say they're not employing me to be a Victoria's Secrets model so do you know what did you have a lockdown project I did lots of Lego and lots of crochet wow Obviously, the Lego for Seamus. No, Seamus doesn't like Lego. That's all for me. Have you been watching the Lego um, program on Netflix? Yes, I have. It's fantastic. Okay, we're expecting to see you on the next series then, maybe. (laughs) Um, Were you a good homeschooler? Not particularly. I'm not a good teacher. Um, So what methods did you employ or how did you both work around it? uh, We, he, like he was primary school school um and uh that that was there was a mixture of how much kind of virtual learning there was and wasn't and we we kind of took the approach of learning in different ways and you know maybe watching watching a movie watching a documentary um cooking you know at the end of the day he he did some of the homework but he didn't do a lot of the homework well i loved um lolly strahan from lolly and cooks her definition of homeschooling was she put a map of the world on the kitchen on the fridge door that was it (laughs) yeah i mean look at i had a full-time job yeah um and it was it was difficult enough um i was a single parent as i learned and you know uh, he was alive at the end of the pandemic so um you both like, that was that was success we hadn't killed each other and we hadn't starved and uh, we you know had watched a couple of series of some really interesting things on netflix so you know all is good with the world that's the complete win uh, you mentioned the image business woman of the year awards in 2019 and you won our overall category can you tell us what, what or and you've won a load of awards and um, what does that feel like or how does it help your career or how does it fix your mindset you know I love image right Mm. and I I spoke about it on the night and so I think to be recognized by image was really it was very it was validating because I see image as and and everything that you do and particularly around uh, women in business is is about uh, you know lifting people up holding them up when they need to be held up um, and pushing people forward and and so that 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 award was was very special and it was an opportunity for me on the night to invite um people to to be at the table with me that that evening who had been really important to me particularly in in the months um previous to that when Noel had been sick and and after he died so I, I as I think I mentioned on the night somebody using the phrase having a scaffold of women around you and and I think the the um that evening and and everything that is around the the image businesswoman um project mm. is is that sense of of being a mutual scaffold uh, for each other so yeah that it, it it was a special it was a special night and it was a special moment well it was very i have to say it was extra special because the volume from that scaffold of women when you won the cheers i have never heard anything like it so it was a really really special moment well i mean we're not good as women and are particularly think as irish people of 
feeling good about ourselves mm. or um having that 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 sense of accepting validation and um, but we all need it and and I think for me it was a kind of a validation and appreciation that yeah I I'm actually is it okay to say I'm good at this you well, know it was we have this reluctance it's true to... but you put in the work to get it it's not like it just you know came down out of the sky and it was obviously the result of I mean I know one I think one of your friends put in the application and you know when you see and just even talking to you now when you hear the extent and the breadth of the work that you do you know it there is no such thing as the overnight success is there no you <laughs> you definitely you have to work at it and you have to keep working yeah, at it yeah. what last question of the three uh, <laughs> what would you like 2022 to be remember, remembered for I think a sense of getting out mm. and about again. Um, I hate to use the word normal because I don't know what normal is um, on, on a personal level, but just that that sense of renewed um, community and togetherness in a less concerned way. Mm. Um, and uh, I would really love to get some sun. <laughs> oh God, that would be so good. Um, could I ask you for a final word or a final observation on a working life? Having a sense of perspective and realizing that at the end of the day, it's just a job. It, it's a very big job you have though, Sinead. So thank you very, very much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to the incredible Sinead McSweeney. Thank you for sharing an hour um, in what would probably take a lifetime at Harvard to absorb. And we'd still need the add-on work experience module before we'd even get half of what you've spoken about today, Sinead. Thanks to Tall Tale Studios and the team at Image, Sophie Parr, Simone Kennedy and Bill O'Sullivan for their help in producing today's podcast. More details on which can be found on our hub at image.ie forward slash work rest slay. Incidentally, that's also where you'll find previous episodes of this podcast, as well as on all your usual podcast platforms. And again, we'd be so grateful if you'd subscribe, rate and or comment on what you've enjoyed. Enjoy the next month and see you for another episode soon.